a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of First Lady and Friends, we are thrilled to have Mark Brackett, the Mark Brackett, the director of Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. We've spoken about him. We've talked about his book on our podcast. We had a book club with his book, Permission to Feel. And we're also thrilled that he's going to be speaking at our Show Up for Teachers conference in November. And I can't wait for you to meet Mark Brackett with me. Let's get proximate. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. Our podcast today is a very special one. We are doing this via Zoom, but we have an incredible guest today. We are so honored. Um, It is the one and only Mark Brackett. We have been talking about you. We have been doing a podcast. We did a book club on Permission to Feel, and we are just absolutely thrilled to have you here, Mark. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. This is this is incredible. So for those of us who have read the book, um, we're going to have a lot of more insights from Mark, but also for those that haven't read it and then. But before that, we're going to talk about it. Um, so you you gave a little bit of background in your book, um, just some some childhood experiences. But tell us a little bit more about your background, um, you know, where you grew up, family, um, you know, your your education journey. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Mark. Sure. You you go. You jump right in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so I was born in a little town called Clifton, New Jersey. Um, and uh, I had an interesting family. I have two older brothers. Uh, and uh, what they're both... We're, the strange thing about my brothers and I is that um, we have a, they have a different father than I have. That's not strange. That just is what it is. But um, neither one of our parents had a college education, and all three of us are doctors. Wow! And so when we get, we get together, we're very close, and we have these kind of like, where do we get this motivation from? Where do we get this desire to you know get our doctorates and things like that? And we're still not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but nevertheless, this is who we are. Um, you know, as you know from from the opening of my book, I had a pretty tough childhood. Um, I had abuse in my childhood that was very, very difficult for me um, and for my entire family, obviously. Um, And part of the reason why, you know, I called my book Permission to Feel is that I really believe that I was robbed of my feelings as a kid. Because this perpetrator basically threatened me that if I shared what was happening, I would be harmed, my family would be harmed. And so... I mean, imagine what it's like for a kid to go through that and not be able to talk about their experience. You're trapped. And 
On the other side, I had two parents who loved me dearly. Like I, my mother would have done anything for me as would have my father. But neither one of them had a lot of training in emotional intelligence. And so my mother had a lot of anxiety. And, you know, all I can remember is her having these mini nervous breakdowns, you know, and saying it out loud, like, don't tell me what's happening. I can't handle it. I'm going to have a breakdown. And so you learn very early in life that, um, guess what? I'm not going to tell mommy anything because she can't handle it. And then I had a dad who also loved me dearly, but he was kind of a tough guy from New York City. And he'd always say things like, son, you got to toughen up. And um, I mean, today I'm 52. I have got a fifth degree black belt, a doctorate. I'm a full professor. And I'm here to tell you, I'm still not a tough guy. <laughs> um, I don't even know what a tough guy is. Um, I think that's like toxic masculinity at the highest level, right? And so, you know, early childhood was tough. I um, School was very difficult for me. I had a hard time focusing. Um, I was not a, a, a good student, you know, in terms of academics. I had terrible grades. I was behavior problems. Um, and I still to this day think, like, how did I become an educator, you know? Yeah. Um, and as you know, um, I had a a magic wand, you know, that that just, you know, swung over my head, which was this uncle, Uncle Marvin, who was my mother's brother, who just transformed my life. And, um, you know, I can talk more about that later. But nevertheless, um, one adult changed my life forever. I think that's crazy important because we talk about this idea of that one caring adult and there's a lot of research as you know around you know there's a harvard study about you know the one caring adult and what that means to people so do you do you think that that was it that was that one caring adult for you you talk about you don't know how you got there or why or what the motivation was but do you think you know you had brothers did they have that one caring adult do you think that may be part of the the calculation there you know it's interesting Everybody has their own story, right? Everybody has their own trajectory and their experiences. I think in many ways, my brothers kind of escaped the difficult reality that I faced because um, they're seven and 11 years older than I am. Um, but, you know, for me, Uncle Marvin, what he did was he gave me hope. Because I had a lot of despair. I had a lot of fear, a lot of hatred, um, a lot of shame, um, which are, you know, these are real feelings that we don't want to deny, but we don't want to feel them for too long. And so, you know, what's interesting to me about Uncle Marvin is that he was the one adult who asked me that simple yet profound question, which was, how are you feeling? But he did it in a way like no one else had ever done. Because he didn't say, don't tell me the details, I'll have a breakdown or toughen up. He said, firstly, keep talking. And secondly, what can we do together to get through this? And I never had that before. And so I just feel blessed, you know, that, um, that he was there for me. Now, the magical thing about Uncle Marvin also was that he was writing a curriculum to teach kids about their feelings. 
And what I didn't know that he was doing secretly was he was asking me to like type up the lesson plans. And so I would type up these lessons on alienation and elation and commitment and despair and jubilance. And then he would say, well, let's talk about those feelings now. And so he was literally helping me to become aware of my experiences. And then we talk about the strategies to deal with those feelings. Little did I know that would become my entire career wow. is teaching kids and adults about feelings. That's incredible. Um, I, I do believe that people get put in our lives for, for a reason. And I think that's um, just a powerful example of that. Let's let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing now um, in the pandemic. Um, I think most of us were aware of of at least partially aware of, of maybe anxieties that we felt or, you know, you know, maybe we aren't weren't. But I think as we've gone through a collective trauma, I mean, really, as a world, um, what what kinds of things are you seeing? I'm sure you're you're inundated now if you weren't before um, with with this collective trauma from people trying to sort it out. What 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 experiences or what things are you seeing uh, as it as it relates to the pandemic? How much time do we have for this? <laughs> <laughs> so, right? you know, I just think, you know, if we thought that anxiety was a challenge before the pandemic, um, it is the number one emotion that we find people say they're feeling these days. And I think it's because the pandemic brought, it just showed us all how much uncertainty there is in the world. And that uncertainty is difficult to deal with. I know I don't do well with it. And I'm like an expert in emotional intelligence. Right. Um, people ask me all the time, so Mark, you know, how are you doing? And I'm like, truthfully, you know, do you want to know the truth? Like, I'm a mess. They're like, but you're, you're like, you're an expert. I'm like, so what? I wrote the papers, I wrote a book, but it doesn't mean like, I'm perfect at all this stuff. And, and by the way, like, there's a lot of uncertainty. And guess what? The emotion that is associated with that is anxiety. So I'm feeling the feeling that I should be feeling. So stop judging me for, you know, <laughs> that I shouldn't feel it. Now, I think what's most important about this is that I'm blessed that I have a great social support network. And I'm blessed that I have a lot of practice with healthy emotion regulation strategies. And what I'm here to tell you is that, I mean, I do endless amounts of presenting on this, like to the point of like a lot, millions of people. And I just find most people don't even know there's a thing called emotion regulation. They don't know there's something they can do with their feelings. They think that their feelings are what they have to be with and they can't do anything with them. And again, the goal of our center's work is not to not feel, but it's to use your feelings wisely. And I think, you know, what I've learned in the pandemic is that, you know, when life is good and you're on vacation and you're, you know, sitting on the beach, no one thinks about emotional intelligence. But when a pandemic hits or you're on the beach and someone kicks the sand in your face, all of a sudden, you're activated and you're, you know, and if you don't have any um, background or education, you don't know what to do with all the feelings. And I think that's what I've seen mostly 
is that people are just, they don't know what to do with all of their feelings. From children feeling frustrated and bored and overwhelmed and scared to adults feeling anxious and stressed and overwhelmed. Um, and so my hope is that this crisis actually is an opportunity because I mean, I remember just giving this one talk, an online talk, and this dad said to me, he's like, you know, Mark, I'm a lawyer, you know, I'm not really into feelings, but now that I'm working from home, you know, and I'm with my wife all the time and with my kids and I'm having to like be the tech coordinator for my kid. And I'm also have to like do the lunchworm and I do the custodian and I'm like this and I'm that, you know, I'm having a lot of feelings and like, I'm not dealing well with them. So can you help me out, man? <laughs> like, of course. That's incredible. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that's true. I think we're all feeling things that we wished we weren't, but um I think uh, for me there's a comfort in that we're sort of all experiencing this together. Um I think sometimes we we can see people maybe not regulating emotions well and that's when when I get a little nervous with kids and and you, you know they're being exposed to 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 media and social media where they're seeing modeled um, some maybe not great ways of processing their emotions and, and regulating it. Couldn't agree more. This is why, as you know, I'm rooting for the emotion revolution. Yes. <laughs> and um, it's not secondary. It's not tertiary. It's central to education. I want to talk about um, parents and really substantial things that we can do as parents, but also um Again, educators, we want to talk about what our educators, what they can do for themselves and what they can do to help their children. And we'll be right back. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. We are back here with the amazing Mark Brackett. We're so honored to have you here on on First Lady and Friends podcast today. Um, We were talking about parenting um, and the emotions we're feeling and the emotions our kids are seeing um, modeled. And um, so I just it's I've had a really interesting week, a couple of days. My daughter is starting a new school because, you know, we we live um, two hours away from the state capitol. And so when my husband became governor, we actually had to move to Salt Lake. And um, our daughter started a new school on Monday. And she's had a lot. She's a 14-year-old daughter. So we have a lot of emotions going on. And um, I actually was driving home to Fairview, to the little town that we live in. And our, I pulled out your book because she was having kind of a meltdown. And I pulled out to the back page and I said, 
point to the emotion you're feeling or the emotions you're feeling. And she started pointing to some of these. And we were so thank you, first of all, because it gave me a tool as a parent to really instead of focusing on the behaviors, which were not great, um, to really focus on what was going on in inside of her and the emotions she was feeling. And they weren't they weren't mean. It was she was feeling lonely. She was feeling apprehensive. She was feeling all these mm-hmm. emotions of starting in a new school and moving to somewhere very scary to her. Um, so it, it was a it was a great example. So let's let's talk a little bit about um, what are some of those strategies for parents, especially even as little like we talk about early childhood, um, you know, mm-hmm. teenagers are going to have these emotions and we have to regulate and talk about those things. What about what what can parents do, at, you know, even at very young ages to, to sort of prepare kids to explore their emotions in this way? I think the first is they have to be the role model. And so, you know, so much of this work, you know, I've done a lot of parenting workshops in my career. And um, so the parents come and they're like, teach my kid or help me teach my kid how to be more emotionally intelligent. And then they leave thinking, uh oh, I got a lot of work to do. And so I wanted to say that up front that because most of the adults who would be listening to a podcast like this probably haven't had a whole curriculum in emotional intelligence right in their school or in their college or even in their home, there's a lot of learning that has to happen for adults. And so I think the first thing is managing our own triggers as adults. You know, you 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 said you you, you the behavior thing with your kid and your your daughter, and so um, same thing in my house because I hated school and I never wanted to go to school because I was bullied and I had tons of stuff and I would go I hate school I'm never going back to school, and then what would my mother do? She would get activated by me because I was you know threatening wasn't threatening her but I was like you know causing her strife, and so she says she couldn't handle it, and so what did she do? Go to your room. Wait till your father gets home. Oh, can't wait for daddy to get home. That's going to be a fun evening. And then my father would get home and he'd stomp up the stairs. Mark, if I have to tell you one more time, if you talk to your mother that way, I'm going to lose it. And then my mother would come up and they would get into a fight. That's not the way we should handle things in our family. I was like, wait a minute. Like, do you remember how you spoke to me a little while ago, mom? (laughs) Anyway. um, And again, they meant well. But they had no training in emotion regulation. So they didn't know what they didn't know. And they didn't have strategies. They didn't even know what a strategy was. So I tell that story because the step one in any development for the adult is <clears throat> you've got to deactivate. You've got to be able to deal with the behavior, even if you don't like it, because behavior is only behavior it's not feeling now it may be inappropriate behavior which you have to fix and deal with but by sending me to my room and not being an uncle marvin and saying hey honey what's going on let's talk about it i see you're having a lot of strong feelings right now you know do you need a little time okay great take some time but you know what over dinner, let, let's talk about this. Let's go for a walk. Let's do some breathing exercises together so we can be together and really just work through this together. You know, I had a rough day as well. So, you know, I'm going to take some time. You take some time. And then let's talk about it. 
So, how are you feeling? What might have happened? And all of a sudden, you learn that um, I'm not angry. I don't hate you. It's that I feel shame because I was made fun of on the school bus. Or I was picked on by one of the bullies. And I have terrible self-esteem issues. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Yeah. It's like, you got to get to know your kid. And you've got to be able to not be activated by their behavior, which might trigger you to then you go into fight, flight, freeze mode. To me, that's the most important thing. Because you can't be present unless you have those healthy emotion management strategies yourself. Yeah. And then you got to know how to become an emotion coach. How do you ask those open-ended questions? Instead of saying, why are you so angry? Or why this? And why this? Don't ask the why questions. They don't help. Find ways to approach your child so they want to tell you the truth. So they want to be with you and confide in you their experiences. I can't tell you how many people tell me that they don't feel like they can be their true, full feeling self with their spouses, with their children. Isn't that that's crazy? Because yeah. they haven't built that sense, you know, that, that relationship. So that's the beginning of the work. No, it's beautiful and and actually very very helpful and something that, yeah, Spencer and I have you 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 talked about the. <laughs> The scenario where, you know, you're sent to your room, the behavior. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sitting here feeling maybe a lot of guilt and shame because. <laughs> Don't disclose too much on the podcast. <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, I, I've known somebody that maybe that had happened. There you go. But yeah, it's, it's, it's always, and, and as my daughter has been having these, these experiences and, and new experiences, that 14 year old insecure little girl in myself is like coming out and I'm trying to mm -hmm. be the adult, be the adult, you know, yeah. work this out, help her, help her through it. Totally. It's, um, and it's hard because, you know, you live vicariously through your child. You don't want your kid to suffer, but you can't control that either. Um, and also the, um, the fixing issue. You know, like I think that as adults are, we have to, we think that, oh my gosh, I have to fix this because there's something wrong if she's anxious or stressed or worried or insecure or feeling shame. And I'm just here to say there's nothing to fix. Mm. There's nothing to fix because life is life. Experiences are experiences. It's not for us to judge any of them. It's for us to become those compassionate emotion scientists who are curious and flexible and wanting to provide unconditional love and support. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned um, this idea of um, parents being um, able to regulate their own emotions and, and figure out where they're at and maybe run through the ruler process themselves. Yeah. Um, so how does that, we're, we want to talk about educators a little bit. What, how does sure. that apply to educators? It's the same thing. It's, ex I mean, there's, you know, it's funny because we do ruler in schools. I also work with companies like fortune 100 companies to train them in emotional intelligence. And guess what? The mood meter is the mood meter. <laughs> doesn't matter if you're a preschooler or a CEO, you got to plot your feelings. You got to be self-aware. And so 
you know, maybe we can just share a little bit about what is this thing called ruler. Uh, ruler is two things. It's the name of the skills of emotional intelligence and also the name of our approach to social and emotional learning that's now in 3,000 schools. Thanks. So what is ruler? First, being aware of emotions, recognizing emotions, self-awareness and other awareness. How am I feeling? How are you feeling? And remember, as I said a little while ago, behavior is not feeling. So I may be stubbing my feet saying, I hate you and I don't want to go to school tomorrow. And you think I'm angry because of my behavior. But I've been taught that because our culture is so messed up that that's the way I have to show it because I'm a boy. And I might be feeling sadness or fear or anxiety or shame or embarrassment, but I'm never going to show that because that will make me be seen as even weaker than I feel. So that's the R, being self-aware and other-aware. Then there's the U. Well, understanding feelings. Where are they coming from? What's underneath the anger, the fear? What's the difference between anger and disappointment? Do you know that I've asked that to like literally hundreds of thousands of people and like literally 1% if that get it right? I won't put you into that test right now because... I don't want you to feel embarrassed during your podcast. So anger and disappointment, right? One is about unmet expectations. The other one is about injustice. Totally different experiences. Most people say they're the same. I'm like, they're not the same. We have two different words here. Why does it matter? Well, think about it. The strategies that you as a teacher or a parent would use to support a child in managing disappointment and anger would be completely different. One is everything's legitimate. I just failed the test. I don't know why. And I just, I'm let down because I had these high expectations of myself. The other one is, wait a minute, there's something unfair here. Something you said or did is, is, is wrong. Completely different strategy. That's why labeling is so important. Is it anger or is it enraged or is it maybe just peeved? You know, how many kids say, I'm depressed. Uh, come on, come with me to the psychiatric ward I used to work at. I'll show you clinical depression. You're disappointed, right? Let's label these feelings properly here. Not to discount depression. It's a real thing. But most of the time, when you hear people talk about feelings, they go to extremes. They're not really labeling their feelings accurately. That's the R, the U, the L. Then the question is, okay, do I express these feelings? I had a ton of feelings, but I didn't share them when I was a kid because I was afraid to. Um, I wasn't in an environment where it was safe to express my feelings. This is why emotional intelligence is not an individual's job. It's a family's job, a community's job, a state's job. So Utah, we can make Utah the second emotionally intelligent state next to Connecticut where I'm working. Um, and I say that because everyone's got to be working on the development of the skills together. The final skill, regulating emotions all those strategies that we were talking about earlier. What do I do to prevent my anxiety about the upcoming test? What do I do to reduce the stress that I have when something goes wrong? What do I do to initiate the feeling that's gonna be helpful for the project I'm working on? What do I do to maintain my feelings when I'm in a good mood and someone's trying to bring me down? And so ruler is these skills. And I just wanna say, that what's I think so important about this 
is that the skills of emotional intelligence are life developmental skills. It's not like math and science. You know, it's not like memorizing who was president, who was governor. It's not like knowing that five plus five is 10. It's understanding that development matters, that my experiences in kindergarten and what I need to understand my feelings when I'm five is different than when I'm 10, than when I'm 15, than when I'm 20, that when I'm 52 and running a center and a pandemic hits and I'm running a group of people, 60 people from my kitchen counter, right? Who could prepare for that? So do you see how like, it's a, this stuff is different than traditional academic stuff because um, it's contextual, it's relationship driven, it's based on life's experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we all have them. So it's, it's very important <laughs> and we all have to uh, connect with one another. Um, and so that is really important. I want to get into what you're working on now and um, some of the data that, that you've seen. Um, we'll be right back. We are back here with um, Mark Brackett. Um, it's been such a pleasure. Um, I know you continue to work on these projects, and um, I would love to know, first of all, let me ask you this. What in the data that you're seeing surprises you? I think probably what's most interesting to me about our most recent studies is that we underestimate the power of leadership especially in our work in schools. An emotionally intelligent leader is a healthier, happier school, period. We've done this now over multiple studies, pre-pandemic, during the pandemic. And think about it. You know, if a leader doesn't have the skills of emotional intelligence, they're not aware of how people are feeling in their environment. They're not empathic and understanding of other people's feelings. They don't show that they can manage the stress and anxiety that's going on in the world with all the crazy changes in schools. It's hard for the people who work in that school to feel safe, supported and valued and connected. And so I just want to urge us, you know, and urge Utah to not think of social and emotional learning as a program for kids. It's the wrong way to think about it. What I'm hoping for is that Utah will see that the goal of this work is to infuse the principles of social and emotional learning into the entire immune system of the, the state. From how governors govern and first ladies, first lady, <laughs> and how leaders lead and how teachers teach and how students learn and how families parent. And so that's the big hope. Incredible. What are you working on now? I'm working on Personal freedom. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, oh dear. What I'm working on is large-scale studies um, around, about teachers, actually. So um, we launched a course that's available for teachers for free to help them manage their feelings, which I'll get you that information to share. And um, we have something like 20 or 30,000 teachers who participated in the research. And I'm really trying to unpack, you know, the emotional lives of our educators so that we can help schools create better supports for them. 
What I'll tell you that's most interesting to me, I'll give a little sneak peek, which will be things I'll talk about in my presentation in November. What do you think is the number one hoped for feeling among educators? Oh, gosh. Success. <laughs> I know I didn't say success or, or that, that their students are, are achieving. I don't know. The number one hope for emotion is appreciation. Mm. Actually, that does not surprise me. We've heard that from many teachers. So, yes, I I screwed up and I'm going to be an emotional scientist. I'm going to own that. And I'm going <laughs> to <laughs> say that um, you are correct. And that does not surprise me at all. Well, it's not that I'm correct. It's just data. Yeah. So um, the um, we found years ago when we asked teachers, well, how do you want to feel? They all said happy and excited. But now they just say, I just want to feel appreciated and valued and supported. And I think for the educators listening and the superintendents and principals and chief education officers, just just know that. And I think... What's also important is that we move away from, well, if you did that, then I would feel this way. And I would prefer the mindset to be, what can we all do as a state and as a community to ensure that everyone feels a greater sense of appreciation and that people feel heard and people feel seen as individuals? And um, so that's a big study we're working on. And um, we continuously do evaluations of ruler. And um, so we're, we have a randomized controlled trial of ruler in early childhood going on, doing studies of ruler in high schools. I'm also launching a national study to unpack what it means to create an inclusive community. I think that we need to deeply understand what people mean and what they're talking about when you know we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think inclusion is probably the, at the heart of all the work because what does it mean to feel like you belong? What does it mean to feel connected and part of something? And so we're going to try to really unpack that for people and give them specific things to work on so that can be a greater uh, experience for people. Wow. Um, what The things you were just talking about are speaking to my heart so much because um, – uh, throughout our, you know, we talked about, we've talked about on this podcast many times, the focus areas of, of our show up initiative. And you talked about the sense of belonging um, and appreciation. We've been d- doing some incredible work with foster families. And that was the one thing they said to us, you know, nobody's ever appreciated us or we've never felt like people have seen what we're, what we're about and what we're doing. And then, you know, your inclusion is speaking to my heart. Um, we we just had a huge meeting with our unified sports team um, with partners from all over the state talking about how we can have better inclusion with our kids with all abilities and um, and creating that opportunity in school for every child to fill that sense of belonging through sports and, and these programs. So Perfect. And um, I think we are kindred spirits now. So, <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to going wider and deeper when I come out there in November. Uh, well, we so appreciate everything you've done, everything you are doing. We appreciate your book. Personally, it has really, it literally has changed my life and the way I'm interacting with my own children. And Say the way. Again, please. 
Yes. <laughs> For those in the back, it's changed my life. <laughs> and 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 we are the, my husband and I as a as a state, we are committed. We're absolutely committed to making sure that um, every person, every child in the state feels included, feels seen, and that educators feel seen and appreciated too. So. So we awesome. appreciate your work. We appreciate the time you've taken to come here on the on the podcast today. We feel honored and we are so, so grateful for you to and excited to see you in November. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for joining us today. We have a special announcement as well. On September 22nd, we will be doing our second book club podcast. And the book will be Think Again by Adam Grant. Get reading the book and send your discussion, questions, comments, and we will read them on the show. Thanks for being a friend.